Bitcoin, crypto bubbles, passive indexation. There's a lot of financial jargon out there. Old Mutual can help you make sense of it all and give you great advice to make the right decisions. If you've got a question or want to know how to get the most out of your money, call them on 0860 60 60 60 or speak to an old mutual financial advisor or your broker. Today's the day. Get great financial advice so you can do great things. Old Mutual is a licensed financial services provider. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, the licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Welcome to The Money Show on this Wednesday evening. Today's fast fact number. It's a fast fact number. It's a number that is a fast fact. The number is 76. There's a specific significance to the number 76 today. I would like to know what is that specific significance. Work it out. Calculate it. We'll talk to Paulie van Beek in just a second. She's been a journalist all over the story of Jonas Maguaco, who's officially resigned from SARS today. Uh, lots of questions remaining, possibly more questions than answers. Uh, we'll talk all about that one this evening. Colin Cullis with Business Unusual coming, uh, coming up later on. And our market commentator, Chris Stewart, tonight on business confidence and what it means. Uh, and EOH, uh, sapping market confidence, a stellar performer for many years. Um, and we've seen the fall of EOH today very, very sharply. 21% drop after warning that its profits would get nailed. 31702-31567, that is the SMS number this evening on today's Fast Fact. The number is 76. SMS me now if you can find the correlation. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. Well, SARS confirming its deputy, the Chief Officer for Business and Individual Tax, Jonas Makwakwa, resigning with immediate effect for personal reasons today. Paulie van Veek is the journalist with Scorpio Investigative Unit with the Daily Maverick on the line to us from Johannesburg. You've been all over the story from the start, Paulie, to the point where yesterday Yunus Karim in Parliament paid tribute to you and to Daily Maverick for making their lives easier when it came to unravelling the very complex tale of Jonas Makwakwa, uh, conflicts of interest, contracts and stuffing money into ATMs. Hi, Bruce. Yes, that did happen. So I hope that Parliament can now hold Muyani to account as well. We'll get to we'll get to we'll get to Tom Muyani in just a bit. Remind us, please, if you go back to, to day zero on this one, the Financial Intelligence Centre picked up on some uh, some suspicious cash dealings when it came to Jonas Makwako's bank accounts, and that's where it all started. Yes, so let's go back to 2016 in May. The FIC, the Financial Intelligence Center, tells us all about it. Um, and they mention, they highlight this interesting looking money laundering ring. Um, and they, they say that this, there was 17 million rand paid from the Department of Water Affairs and Forestry to about 12 entities making a loop that looks an awful lot like money laundering. And the very first account um, the department pays that 17 million rand in would be in the new integrated credit solutions. Now, if we take ourselves back, uh, forward um, two years later in March 2018, the struggling SARS appoints um, eight debt collectors to help collect. Oh, phone line is gone. Always suspicious. Paulie from Vake, you still with us? Yes, sorry. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Um, yeah. SARS appoints eight debt collectors, one of whom is, surprise, surprise. Yes, indeed. And the new integrated credit solutions. 
This is the same money laundering ring where um, 600,000 rand in the end landed in Jonas Makwakwa's private bank account. So now we have this company um, linked twice to Jonas Makwakwa because in the end, um, the, the tender procedure worked like this. So every company um, sent their tender, tender documents to SARS and there was a bit adjudication committee that sat on it and decided on it and other co uh, committees as well. And in the end, that committee's decision was sent to a committee, a bigger, like the overall committee that's, that some exco members sat on. And Makwakwa was also in that committee. Now, the problem is this. Makwakwa wants us to believe that he did not recognize this name in the FIC report that got him suspended for over a year. And he did not recuse himself on the basis thereof. So, so that would be the whole problem of the conflict of interest between the SARS's new debt collector and and the money laundering ring highlighted by the FIC. Uh, okay, so here's the FIC. It says there's a money laundering ring at play. Then Makwakwa goes on suspension. There is this big investigation. PwC and Hogan Lovells uh, carry out an investigation. The next thing, uh, Jonas Makwakwa reappears at SARS in his old job. Um, no harm, no foul, we are led to believe at that particular point. Yes, and that it prompted us to investigate. So Scorpio looked at all the documents and especially what Muyani um, himself put out in public, like his press releases and his reportage to Parliament. And we realized that everything does not make sense. And if you put it into uh, order, it, it sort of creates a continuum um, where the start and the end point differs vastly from each other. So what we found was that uh, the investigative process was totally tailored um, and helped on by international law firm Hogan Lovells. Um, Hogan Lovells did not put all the information in the FIC report to Makwakwa in the end. So that meant that the disciplinary investigative reporter of, or, or report of Hogan Lovells was also tailored. And that means that the disciplinary process could never have been fair and based on the FIC report. Now, in the meantime, Tomoyani contravened several laws, uh, including the FIC, the PFMA and the SARS Act, in order to shield Makwakwa from scrutiny and from um, accounting what he has done. To this day, and, and as you said, there are so many questions still, to this day we do not know what exactly the, the money was for that, that landed in Makwakwa's um, personal bank accounts. In the end, we did see that he spent two to three times more per month um, than more than what he actually and legally earned from SARS. So the, the math really doesn't make sense. Um, there's a lot of lot for Makwakwa to, to account for. And then obviously Muyani in the end for it too, because he lied and misled Parliament and led us all to believe that Makwakwa was properly and duly investigated for all the, um, the allegations in the FIC report. Um, which we showed that it didn't happen, and that therefore Makwakwa was allowed to go back to SARS. But in the end, we can show and prove in documents that Makwa the why Makwakwa was actually suspended was never removed before he was reappointed right back into SARS. Uh, and now we've got an issue where... His tax affairs are going to be made available under conditions to the Parliamentary Standing Committee on Finance, which 
to my mind, is not typical of the actions of somebody who believes they might be found out. So it's not the the actions of a of an of a guilty man. You don't agree, surely, to that kind of um, uh, transparency if you feel as if it may prejudice you in some way. Yeah, that's true. Overtly, it looks like Tom Uyani is now playing ball. But remember that he kicked for touch for four months. He tried to to steer away from this moment for over four months. And only until Parliament told him and Yunus Karim sort of lost his temper um, it, and said that he, that he would be subpoenaed to do so, then only at the time that Muyani say, okay, we will give you a redacted version of the Hogan Lovells report and we will give you the disciplinary inquiry uh, signed by Terry Mutau SC. But also remember that the disciplinary um, documents is already in stories that I've written. So that's already in public domain. Tomoyani can't really do anything about it. And that shows exactly that what was supposed to be investigated based on the FIC report never made it into the final disciplinary document as Muyani wanted us to believe. Uh, and what about Hogan Lovells and their role in this? This is a law firm, <coughs> being a part of international repute. Has it been led up the garden path? That is, has it cut its own path through the garden? Has it been KPMG'd in its dealings with SARS? Oh, so I don't believe that Hogan Lovells um, maliciously acts in, in this. Um, what I do believe is that they did not, they did not ask the right questions, and they did not act on their red flags, and they did not push towards what was right at the time. Um, because when laws in this country did we hold a an audit firm or a lawyer's firm um, to account, and even even KPMG still now tries to wriggle and and get mm. out of of what what we have on paper. So what Hogan Lovells did was to uh, draft a sort of a road, if you wish. Um, it was a terms of reference where they said all of these allegations in the FIC report should be investigated, um, some by themselves, some by SARS itself, uh, the tax some by the Hawks, and, and some by PwC. Um, and in the end, they materially deviated from their own roadmap so as to, because Tomoyani told them, suddenly you can't have access to the PwC report that investigated the tax matter. Now, there's also a problem because um, Mudise, the chairman of Owen Lovells, told me that the tax matter has been finalized and that PwC gave the report to Muyani. But in Parliament, Muyani says that the tax matter is not finished mm-hmm. yet. And, so, and, and in terms of that, I can't tell you who is sort of obfuscating and not telling the truth yet. We're still working on that. But do you see that the the morning and day or the night um, like talk is not is is not the same. There, so there is an incon- there is an inconsistency there, Paulie. Absolutely, absolutely. right. <laughs> uh, why the hurried exit today? Suddenly, I mean, uh, uh, Tom Moyani backing Jonas Mukwakwa, Jack backing Jonas Mukwakwa, and suddenly today, the fourteenth of March, twenty eighteen, there's a rushed press conference, and and for personal reasons, Jonas Mukwakwa has decided to step down from SARS. It's all very, very slowly, 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 and then suddenly. Yeah. So it's it's a very very interesting what happened today because in Tomoyani's press release he still denies everything that we put on record with documents attached to it. So he would still say that 
the formal disciplinary hearing um, uh, was con- was conducted in a proper manner and so on. So he's still backing Tomoyani. Uh, he's still Moyani is still backing Makwakwa in one way, but I think the NICS situation was just beyond the realm of where we can we can say you know it's it's a matter of how you interpret the law. Um, they either you disclosed it or you did not and either this might be a problem or it's not so and 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 clearly makwakwa realized that there's just one too too many problems now and that you know that that he should should make a, a decision here uh, are we seeing a, are we seeing a decision day looming for tom Wayani? yes most definitely i can't reveal everything that i'm working on at the moment but there's definitely new revelations coming before the end of the week, specifically relating to Mujani and the Guptas. And we will most definitely um, uh, push for Mujani to at least give us um, a very fair and, and open response to what we have. Because at the moment, the evidence is sort of damning. Polly van Veik, journalist with Scorpio at the investigative unit of the Daily Maverick. More to come on that website, so you'll be logging on at midnight. I, I, think, I think you'll be safe logging on at 7 a.m. in the morning. Um, look, tomorrow, that's Thursday. If it's not there tomorrow, and if it's not there by 5 o'clock tomorrow afternoon, you can bet your bottom dollar it'll be there on Friday morning for the weekend traffic that that will generate for that website. Polly van Veik, all over that story, getting uh, accolades from Eunice Karin in Parliament yesterday for the work that she's done in exposing uh, many of the nefarious activities connected to this particular extraordinary tale of the commissioner, his deputy, and the very, very significant attempts um, at supporting his deputy. And today that support ran out. And Jonas McQuackwa, for personal reasons, stepping down from SARS. What's bizarre is the details that are being made available to Parliament. That I can't connect in my little brain as to why, if you at all concerned that you may be caught out, why is the sudden desire for transparency on, the, uh, transparency on that particular basis? I asked you today in our fast fact, the number 76, and if you said, as all of you who have entered have said, that it is the death of Stephen Hawking at the age of 76, then you've got half of the equation. But a mathematical equation needs a second half as well. You don't think I'm going to let you get away with it that easily, do you? 76 is the magic number, and you've got half of the equation right. It's not as simple as just the death of Stephen Hawking. The Money Show. The Markets. Chris Stewart from Investec Asset Management. A bit of a dog show in the markets. We're not used to seeing 700-point falls on the JSE anymore, and um, we've got a big knock on the day, Chris. Yeah, but somebody not following the script today, I'm not quite sure what's going on. <laughs> exactly, the script is meant to be up, up, up and confidence. Um, the Yeah, it, it should have been quite good. There was Chinese data that came out earlier this morning that was very good for, amongst others, Kumba and Exaro and uh, kept the resources um, in positive territory for much of the day. Um, and then we saw our business confidence numbers, which also should have been quite supportive. Yeah, Bruce, under normal circumstances, as you indicate, uh, bulk commodities got a bit of a shot in the arm first thing this morning. Uh, and we saw business confidence numbers that should have uh, appeased the market, I think, still below 50, but certainly a, a f- substantial improvement on the uh, previous period's numbers. So that was all playing according to script. We had uh, more turnover at the White House overnight, which I think has got the markets a little bit uh, concerned as to exactly w- what's the extent of trade uh, trade barriers that are going to be put in by the U.S. and what's going to be the reaction out of Europe and China and, and what impact is this 
this going to have on global growth? That's certainly a theme that's attracting attention at the moment. Um, but equally well, I guess we have seen uh, South African stocks, the sort of stocks that you would expect to, go, expect to go up on the back of a good business confidence improvement. We've seen these stocks in RAND terms rallying very, very substantially since the beginning of December and in dollar terms rallying even more so. And we are seeing something of a pullback in the banks, the retailers, the domestic industrial stocks. And, and that's to be expected, I guess. You know, markets cannot go up all day, every day with a consistent theme. And sooner or later, people have got to say, well, I've made fantastic returns in a very short period of time. The prospects are improving, but the earnings numbers are going to take some time to come through. Uh, let's bank some of this profit. Uh, doesn't mean the trade is over. Doesn't mean that we don't think uh, that these stocks uh, are well positioned. It simply means that the market has perhaps got a little bit ahead of itself mm. in terms of uh, their expectations and pricing in the expectations of an improved environment. I mean, one of those companies that priced in great expectations in perpetuity almost and was um, the best performing share on the JSE year after year after year was EOH. Miracle company. How could anything ever go wrong at EOH? And then uh, Sunday business from the public sector started slowing and drying up. And EOH with a terrible trading update this morning, warning it's that going to be profits will be at least uh, 20 to 25 percent down. And EOH already under the cosh down another 21 percent today to 59 Rand 50. Yeah, at 59 Rand 50, I can't remember where it topped out, but I'm going to say somewhere around 180 Rand. So it's lost probably two thirds of its value since the top. Uh, and uh, probably an equal to close to an equal amount in the last 12 months. I mean, it was at 180 rand odd uh, as recently as within the last 18 months, I would guess. So it's a story that was, uh, you know, um, something of a market darling, certainly amongst the small and mid-cap space. Uh, it also occupies a space where investors are uh, devoid of, of investment alternative in the market. If you want to get some sort of exposure to the uh, tech sector in South Africa, short of uh, you know buying your discounted version of ten cent on the local market in the in the shape of Naspers, there's not an awful lot else that you can buy from a tech perspective. So it was one that that attracted the market's uh, attention. They had been growing quickly. Uh, Offer highly acquisitive strategy, which is another strategy I think the market's fallen a little bit out of love with of late, highly acquisitive companies. And, um, you know, we're now starting to see that unravel a little bit, as you indicate, indicating that earnings will be down 20 to 30% over the period, despite the fact that the top line is held up okay. And they allude to the fact that uh, particularly some of the government level business they've been doing uh, has dried up. So activity levels have been down. And in order to try to at least uh, keep everyone in the business busy and, uh, you know, to keep contracts going, uh, it looks as though they've been taking uh, a margin sacrifice and that margin sacrifice mm. is giving them some negative leverage on the bottom line and earnings down up to 30%, not what the market was looking for. Well, highly acquisitive companies falling out of favour, so EOH is one of those, Steinoff certainly one of those. Uh, would you chuck Aspen into the same pillbox? Well, Aspen keeps getting thrown into the same pillbox, not by me necessarily, but it does keep coming into the, well, highly acquisitive, uh, you know, lots of intangibles on balance sheet. Uh, how long can this carry on? Is the business model one that is sustainable? Is it going to unravel eventually? You're buying these relatively uh, uh, cheap uh assets that uh, you know some of the other pharmaceutical companies no longer want. You seem to be able to take advantage of a, a strong distribution footprint uh, in emerging markets, but these are assets that perhaps have a relatively uh, shorter duration 
or shorter lifespan therefore need to be replenished by the next deal. And if the next deal doesn't come, what happens to growth? So, you know, there are some question marks over whether Aspen can continue uh, to sustain the stellar growth rate that it's shown over many, many years. Uh, I think management have been fairly vocal in, 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 in their view that it is indeed sustainable. They can continue to grow the business. The market's sitting on the fence a little bit, and Aspen, as a consequence, has derated quite sharply, Bruce. Chris Stewart from Investec Asset Management. Thank you very much, uh, Chris Stewart. The number 76 this evening. It's our tricky, tricky Wednesday <laughs> number. It doesn't work as well as Tricky Tuesday, but it's a number for our fast fact. I asked you the number 76. What is the specific significance today? All of you got the half of it right, um, and that is that it is the age of Stephen Hawking who has died at the age of 76. But I told you that was only half the equation. Uh, and some of you have come back with it now. Um, uh, Magane in uh, Kensington and others saying also it, um, uh, Albert Einstein was also 76 when he died. And of course, these are two guys that changed the well, global perspective on physics and the way we understand the uni- universe, the age of both Stephen Hawking and Albert Einstein on the day they died. Do you believe in coincidence or do you believe in mathematical certainty? Because the death today of Stephen Hawking at the age of 76, the same age as Albert Einstein when he died, where Hawking, who was born on the 8th of January 1942, That was spot on the 300-year anniversary of the death of another great mathematician, Galileo Galilei. And Hawking's death in the early hours of this morning means he died not only on Einstein's birthday, but also on Pi Day. Now, this is getting into maths nerd territory in a very serious way. Pi, of course, 3.14 or 314, and it is the 14th of March, the 14th of the third month. Pi Day celebrated on March the 14th around the world. It's a symbol used in maths to represent a constant. The ratio of the, what was it, the circumference of a circle to its diameter is exactly 3.14, and they've worked it out to a trillion digits beyond that. Stephen Hawking was a mathematical genius. Not only was he a mathematical genius in life, but he was a mathematical genius in the day and the time he chose to die as well. Stephen Hawking um, uh, uh, dying in the early hours of this morning. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Well, the Bureau for Economic Research today, their business confidence index improving dramatically. There have only been about 15 times where the business confidence index has risen by 11 points or more in a single uh, measuring period. And today was one of those days. Kevin Lings, the Stan Lib economist, on the line to us uh, from Port Elizabeth tonight. Uh, Kevin Lings, business confidence, we know everybody feels better because you just have to look at the currency and you look at the valuations of locally focused shares. But it's a dramatic improvement in confidence in a short period of time. Evening, Bruce, that's exactly right. A uh, big jump in confidence. And I think the point the BER was making is that it was across all of the sectors. So remember, they measure confidence, say, manufacturing confidence in the retail sector, the motor industry. So they measure a range of uh, industries. And what they were highlighting is that that jump in confidence was broad-based. The other thing I think that is useful to just uh, pick up on is that this was a pure sentiment effect. In other words, what's not coming through is that activity levels, business activity levels haven't picked up. It's not as if people are feeling more confident because suddenly they find a whole lot of business going on. What they're saying is they 
feeling confident mostly because the political environment has changed and they therefore think that the better political environment is then going to lead to more business activity. So it is really, in this instance, a pure sentiment jumping confidence. Is that a suggestion that this could be a bit of a sucker rally in business confidence, that if it does not translate into investment, if it doesn't translate into growth, uh, we're going to get back to where we started uh, six months ago very, very quickly indeed? There is that risk. So this, so this, almost we we are giving uh, the politicians the change in the politics the benefit of the doubt. That's effectively what's happened. Uh, and clearly, if the politicians can't deliver in terms of policy, in terms of growth initiatives, uh, and potentially other mechanisms, then it's it's sort of telling us that that confidence will peter out. In other words, if activity doesn't follow, business activity, some investment activity, perhaps private-public partnerships, if those things don't follow, then this confidence level will peter out and then we'll struggle to gain momentum. But it is a, it is a clear statement. I would read this as a clear statement that the change in politics is perceived as a good move by the business community. And we get to the, uh, the idea of which comes first, the chicken or the egg. Does mm. confidence come before investment or does investment come before confidence? I would argue you've got to feel confident before you are willing to put your cold, hard cash into into bricks and mortar. 100%. So it does definitely, it's part of the leading indicator. Most countries have a confidence component to their leading indicator for good reason. So generally you would feel that sentiment, pure sentiment, pure expectation starts to go up. People are feeling more optimistic. Then they start to see that that optimism is valid. They start to see a little bit more buoyancy in business activity. And then subsequent to that, they decide, yes, let's undertake some investment. I think the benefit South Africa's got is that we haven't been undertaking investment in the private sector for so long that there is some pent-up demand just to renew equipment and upgrade machinery. So I'm not convinced it's going to take a phenomenal increase in confidence before you see at least some some maintenance capex, some renewal capex, not expansion capex, but at least something that starts to revitalize the business. So I think if we can just build on this confidence, particularly get it above the neutral level. So remember, the index is now at 45. The neutral level will be considered 50. A low point, if you go back to, uh, remember the Rubicon speech? um, 1985, yeah. 1985, the confidence reading then fell to below 10 index points. That was the low point ever recorded. At the time when we were awarded the Soccer World Cup in the mid-2000s, and the economy was growing at 5%, then our confidence reading was 85, 87, approaching 90. That's, that's the best we've ever been. Kevin Lings, we must leave it there. The Standard Economist, thank you very much indeed. We're midway between chaos and disorder and optimism sitting at 45 on that confidence index, but dramatically better than a couple of months ago. uh, Thank you to Stanlip economist Kevin Links. 702 and Cape Talk. The Money Show. So lots of brands really struggle to deal with social media. They struggle to deal with their customers, and especially when their customers are cross with them, they struggle even more. Extraordinary research being done by Worldwide Works, whose managing director, Arthur Goldstuck, joins us on The Money Show this evening. And brands are spending millions building huge audiences on social networks, and then they figure out that, hold on a second, what kind of a relationship do we really have with these audiences anyway? And you've been given some really in-depth access, Arthur, to the social media platforms involved. 
Yes, thank you, Bruce. We had a, a fascinating exercise in trying to get under the skin of major brands' social media presence. And we were able to persuade 50 major South African brands to allow us and a company called Continue On to use their platform, which essentially analyzes uh, data inside the social media platform. Um, we got uh, their, their permission for Continue On to access their accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So in effect, we're able to watch live what was happening under the skin of their social media presence over the last uh, three months and analyze every single interaction they had with uh, their followers, um, supporters, or simply people watching their brands on social media. Overall, your assessment is brands have lost control of their customers or at least their interactions with customers. Yes, what we found is that brands have no idea who's really influencing uh, engagement or activity on their accounts. So we were able to ultimately measure the activity of more than 5 million people engaging with these brands, with just 50 brands. And out of those 5 million, we found that 355,000, so around 67% of the total number of people engaging with the brands, actually were having an influence on other users uh, on the uh, internet and on social media, getting them to interact with the brand as well. And why that's important is because brands uh, traditionally pay what they call influencers, people who've got a big following on social media. They pay them large amounts to be their brand ambassadors, uh, so to speak. In some cases, simply to tweet on their behalf or to post on their behalf or just to repost, retweet and the like. And in fact, those are not necessarily the people who are having the biggest impact. And what we found was exactly that, was that the, uh, the, the, the biggest followings did not translate into the biggest influence. And, and it just goes to show that consumers aren't stupid. I mean, in the era of social media, I think everybody's assumed that people on social media are pretty thick and that you can uh, get a message through using a highly paid uh, celebrity influencer to, to drive sales or to, to drive brand. And you're proving that to be false. Exactly, exactly that. And uh, in fact, for, for every social media platform, the uh, influence of the... Uh, the celebrities, so-called, is, is very different, and different kinds of people have a big influence in different uh, social networks. So the most interesting of all was that on Twitter, uh, for example, the most influential people were those who were regarded as the most authentic, and you had the strongest message to put across, rather than those who had the best hairstyle or uh, had the most uh, TV appearances, for example. So on Twitter in particular, you find that uh, influencers tend to be paid by brands based on how famous uh, they are. And in fact, the, the actual influence is based on how authentic you are and not necessarily because you're a celebrity. Uh, and that, I mean, it shows that, uh, that Twitter is not a great place to be trying to influence on your brand. Instagram, um, ironically, is worse than Twitter. And that surprised me because so many of 
these people who post pictures of themselves getting on and off trains and carrying flashy handbags and wearing fancy shoes, and that's just the men, um, uh, are, are portraying themselves as these great big influencers. And it turns out Instagram is actually the least effective mechanism if you're trying to influence your, uh, your consumers or trying to drive your brand uh, presence. Certainly, if, you, if you're trying to use celebrities to uh, drive that brand, what we did find was that Instagram is the platform where people engage most actively uh, with brands, but not based on uh, celebrities endorsing the brands, uh, ra- rather based on the effectiveness of the brand itself and who it actually uh, gets, or, or accidentally in most cases, who it gets to uh, engage with a brand and uh, recommend it to others or, or like uh, particular postings and therefore their friends like those postings as well. And you find that people who engage more authentically uh, with, with a brand are more trusted by others in terms of them then engaging with mm. a brand. I mean, it's something that Ponzi schemers and fake news purveyors have known for a long time, which comes through in your research, is actually Facebook is probably the sweet spot in terms of influence. Uh, Indeed. In fact, uh, Facebook, probably because it has such a massive uh, following uh, or or user base, rather, uh, the World Wide Works research late last year showed 16 million South Africans on Facebook. And uh, that really means that almost everyone who who does engage with brands practically is um, on Facebook. So it is... If you, if you can reach the people on Facebook, then it is uh, the place to go. But I have to also uh, point out that for different industries, the impact is very uh, different. And we found, for example, that the, the top performer in terms of, of categories that people engage with the most are the fast food outlets. And in fact, um, the, the, the clothing stores who are really big on social media fall far behind the fast food uh, people. Fine. But then if you compare the amount of followers with the amount of people who engage with the, uh, the, um, so the brand on social network, you find that uh, non, non-profit um, organizations have a far higher level of engagement relative to their following in other categories. So everything depends on the category. It depends on the platform. And there isn't a one-size-fits-all in any way. More details coming out. Arthur Goldstack launching that research this very evening. Thank you for taking time out, Arthur Goldstack, and joining us on The Money Show. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. Five big reasons the SME department has failed entrepreneurs. This is a big, hard-hitting discussion. It was triggered by a comment that I heard uh, being made in a meeting that I was in with Clanty Pai earlier on today, and he was just talking um, about the the sort of the hopes and the aspirations of young people in South Africa being dashed. And I said to him, what was that phrase you used? It's a a cruel hoax. And he said, yeah, cruel hoax. Um, So we're going to talk about the five big cruel hoaxes that are being fed to young South Africans. 
from an economic perspective. Um, and that is coming up at, at about uh, 20 past seven this evening. Colin Cullis standing by for Business Unusual. And then uh, Donna Williams, the chief executive at the Tsimo Lohong Precinct. It's all about, there are lots of hubs and there are lots of places where people can meet and network and gather. And how on earth do they stand out in a busy space um, of tech entrepreneurs? That's what we're focusing on at uh, half past seven this evening. Coming up on the next Money Show, we've got the chief executive of Old Mutual, Bruce Hempel, talking all about the company's coming home, the big planned breakup of the Old Mutual group and the bringing of its primary listing back to the JSE. Warren Ingram on why your household budget should be sexy. Yep, he's a financial advisor. Look, he's desperate. And Pablo Fatiti is taking all your small business questions. Next time on The Money Show. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. I don't know about you, but for me, dealing with one reality is complicated enough. Life is complicated. Then you've got to add into it virtual reality and maybe even augmented reality. But then there's a new kid on the block called mixed reality, and I just have a little bit too much of reality, Colin Cullis. It's true, Bruce. There's just too much reality for our own good. But we are, well, I am fascinated generally about the next big things, even though the next big thing is usually normally described that way after the fact. We don't, we don't really know what the next big thing is. We tend to look back and say, yeah, that was the next big thing back then. But we tend to focus on what we don't know rather than what we do. The old hype cycle uh, allows us to do that. And here I am uh, doing my bit for the hype cycle for this new mixed reality and the company called Magic Leap. Mm-hmm. So a reminder about how amazing things could happen is if, if you remember the first mobile phone, well, that was basically a brick with no coverage and a worse battery. Uh, the first PCs needed actual computer programmers uh, and, and an early form of the of a website uh, was pretty much just an electronic document they, they were never seen as genius for what where they started it's where they led us that actually allowed us to say wow this is amazing and for virtual reality uh, that was sort of kicked off with with the buzz around oculus this is this kickstarter project that uh, facebook bought before it even shipped mm-hmm. uh, google glass was launched with skydivers and cheering crowds and an amazing sort of reception for it uh, microsoft's hololens that was a little more sedate as they rolled it out but nevertheless a lot of people were looking forward to what this thing could do and while people were receptive to the idea they were very critical of the actual product the things were bulky, uh, they were big, uh, they were expensive, they still are, uh, and very often they just didn't work, which is where we find ourselves now. And so all the clamor of people still wanting to try and uh, work in this sort of field, and there are a lot of them, a lot is happening in the background. Uh, and one in particular is this sort of company that's not in Silicon Valley, it's in Florida. Uh, it doesn't make a whole lot of crazy claims. There are some pretty impressive ones that it has put out. So generally, it's quiet. And, and usually when we hear about it, it's because another large company has invested a huge amount of money into it. Google, Alibaba, Axel Springer, Saudi Arabia was the most recent one, $400 million uh, invested in this company. And it has yet to provide a product. It has said in December it will be releasing its first product this year, which is why I'm kind of saying, okay, I'll talk about it because it was launched or it was created in 2010. Uh, and, and the thing is, what are they looking to build? And here, here maybe I'm going to give you a bit of a, a funny sort of thing. Are they looking to build an industry-changing product or a product-changing industry? Whoa, whoa. An industry-changing product or a product-changing industry? Because we always just assume mm. it's a product. Everybody's building yeah. products. 
Sometimes it isn't. Let me explain the difference. So a mobile phone, we, we mentioned that one earlier, that was a product that transformed the telecommunications, telecommunications industry. Landlines became out of vogue. The mobile phone ruled. But when you think about computer-generated graphics, CGI, they allowed for a new type of movie, and it's transformed the industry. The most profitable blockbusters all feature a lot of CGI effects. Many of them are, are old comic books. Those old comic book stories couldn't have been you know, put on the big screen back in the day. But because of CGI, you could create those movies. They were believable. We went and paid big bucks to go and see them. That's how uh, uh, the industry changed as a result of the product rather than the product changing the industry. Uh, GoPro kind of almost tried to do this. And when we touched on this one, it was sort of, would they do it, wouldn't they do it? So they started with these great cameras. People started capturing lots of awesome uh, video. The competitors came along with similar cameras. They started converting to say, let's create a community of, of you know, video makers. And they did do that, except they didn't turn it into something that would sustain them as a business. So the, the jury's out as to whether or not they're going to just limp along through or disappear and be bought by somebody else. But that was a classic case of they managed to change the way we do things. They just weren't able to make a business for themselves while doing it. And Magic Leap is kind of in that same boat. They've, they've currently got a well-funded promise because they think they've got the kind of tech that has moved us forward. And maybe it's worthwhile just mentioning what the difference with these techs are. Please, because, I mean, okay, reality I can picture. I'm sitting here, you're there. Um, This is reality as far as I know. Um, uh, And so this is the reality I can cope with. And virtual reality is where I get fancy specs and then I fall over my own feet as I watch a video on my phone, for example. The rest of it is beyond me. Yeah, so virtual reality pretty much says replace everything you see with a new you know, new image, a new overlay, and a whole new reality altogether as you move your head, uh, things that you couldn't see come into view. You know, you, you literally replace everything with this virtual reality. And the fancier ones now, you can move backwards and forwards rather than just sort of moving your head around. Uh, and they add sound that follows you around as well. Quite, quite impressive. Augmented reality wanted to put things that weren't real into the real world. And they generally did that by sort of having a, a screen display in front of you and then projecting a reflection onto that screen, which then overlaid. It was kind of opaque and that sort of... Is that a Pokemon Go thing? Yes, sort of yes, ins- yes, Inserting things into the real world. Right, okay. R- right on the money. And generally, like Pokemon Go, you know, your little, your little blobby thing sort of stays there when you walk around. Oh, sorry. It my little blobby thing. You meant the your Pokemon. Pokemon. Yes, right. <laughs> your Pokemon. It stays generally in that one space, even though the background moves. Uh, and, the, and the fancier versions of that allow you to actually walk around. So you would, you would see the little Pokemon... You You'd be able to walk around them. You'd be able to walk up to them. You'd be able to walk away from them. They get bigger and smaller as you're moving that. And the mixed reality combines the stuff that is static with the stuff that moves. They'll either move across your screen as you're looking at a fixed point, or they will be fixed in a place because you put them there. And and the the, the thing with Magic Leap, and I'm going to leave out the the hardcore tech stuff because they use a thing called magic magic uh, 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 light field methods. Again, something that was postulated and devised many many years ago, but the technology didn't exist to be able to provide the processing power to make that look believable enough for us to want to use. And of the demos, and I'll post one or two of them online, they certainly do appear to be quite impressive. And so I'll run through some of the potential places they can use it, and hopefully that gives you an idea as to you know if, if it's going to be kind of useful. So, so the first one would be um, you uh, uh, well that, that they've done is is the, uh, an agreement with the NBA, the Basketball Association in America, and and these days when you watch sport, there are so many overlays about how far a kick has been or how many meters somebody's run and everything else. So basically, there's hardly any space left on the screen. In fact, I'd go so far as to say if you go and watch live sport these days, it's almost disappointing because hey, there's nothing in front of me except a bunch of players running around <laughs> kicking balls. So and dull, yeah. It is. Uh, now, what they're saying is, well, rather than sticking all those overlays on your TV screen you can stick them all over the room around it. 
And if you wanted to see the latest running stats for how many points this guy scored or you want to see a, a replay of a piece of action, you simply just call up another screen with a replay, zoom in. You can do all sorts of crazy stuff like that. I have no idea what they're actually going to do right now. It's all very like, oh, we've got an agreement. We'll see what happens. But the promise is that they could do all of those things, and that would be very helpful uh, for sport. You probably have a, most most people in companies will see this one colleague, and he's got like a bank of computers. They're surrounded by screens. They look very impressive. How, how they focus on all those screens at once, I don't know. But you know that's their setup. Well, this effectively will allow all of us to have that because you just create all of these virtual screens, and each of them will have different stuff displayed. And as you turn your head, you'll look at the different ones and and use and interact them. The other plus about that is, of course, only you are seeing those screens. So people who normally or maybe have to be put in sort of a pretty private area so that nobody can see what's on those screens, they can sit anyway. In fact. If you want to be one of these uh, coffice workers, you know, working from restaurants and things like that, well, effectively you can do your stuff wherever you want and nobody has a clue what you're doing. And here a particular uh, value might be sort of security workers. You imagine somebody or well, somebody not looking at their phone while stamping passports, for example, <laughs> have some screen information up in front of them uh, and see while looking at you, seeing if there's any sort of outdated things for you or running comparative pictures to see if you were maybe on a wanted list somewhere. They can, they can do stuff like that. So that's, that's kind of very useful real world things for this kind of technology. But they've also made a, 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 an agreement, a collaboration. I'm not quite sure how, how serious it gets, but with a, a comic book publisher called Madefire. And here the notion is if, if comic books have been so profitable for movie makers and there are a lot more comics coming out new and there are even more old comics that you can't turn all of them into movies, but you can make those comics a lot more immersive. And so for a younger generation that's maybe thinking, well, paging a static image uh, drawn onto a page is not that exciting for them anymore. This could be a way to make all of them become a lot more fun. In the movie industry, huge amounts over there. We tend to watch, as I say, a very impressive final product. The poor actors are wandering around looking at a bunch of green screens and funny props with little uh, white balls on them. Uh, using these same screens, the actors may be able to immerse themselves into what the final product looks like and so give us a better performance. Or the cameras, rather than having to do that all in post-production, might be able to shoot the live action with the generated effects yeah. all in one place. And because the Lucasfilm collaboration and Wetterworks, or Lucasfilms in this case, is owned by Disney, Disney makes a, a fair bit of money from its theme parks. And theme parks are expensive. You've got to build everything, and everybody only experiences that one particular ride. Imagine you walk into a room, and this week it's configured when you put on these little goggles with a couple of props into an Alice in Wonderland. You can come back tomorrow, you can come back in an hour, and it's configured for something completely different. You can have the same people wandering through the same building, and they can choose their own experience because of what they will see as they wander through their house of horrors, the fantastic zoo, the, you know, what it's running under the sea. You can just pretty much drop in whatever you want. And with a couple of props usefully placed just to give you the, the feeling of reality, you've got to win. Or six people on a roller coaster, each of them seeing something different while experiencing the same movement. Those sorts of things, again, you know, that's a, that's a good money spinner for somebody not having to think about having to make only one. And the person at the middle of all of this, because most of these companies have, have a person like that, is a guy called Ronnie Abwitz. And maybe he's the right guy for it. He's a biochemical engineer who made his money from his previous company building uh, a, a, a robotic sort of uh, hand device thing that assists surgeons with operations and sold it for over a billion dollars. So he founded this in 2010 with enough cash that he could take his time. And it is. It's eight years later, and he's now saying, we're ready for our first product. But he's got a love of art, and it's this mix of the, the, the technology and the art and the creativity that I think he's trying to embrace that, that, that seemingly is going to give it a go. Well, I, I certainly would say so because his bet includes having four different office spaces, one, one in New Zealand, and over 1,000 staff. No product, remember. That's the size of this company. It is absolutely crazy what they've gone for. However, as I think can be expected, there are quite a few critics, some of which going so far as to say this is all a sham. 
this guy's taking money and it's not the first unicorn we've seen who's lost their horns because they just promised something they couldn't deliver. Uh, but they believe that this is, this is something that, that simply won't materialize. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that his necessarily will ch- change the world, but I'm pretty sure that his will help us change the world, along with the Google Glass and the, and the Microsoft HoloLens and the Oculus. I think they're all going to be pretty good. And, and, and here's the three kind of scenarios that they might fit. The high road, the, the best case scenario. They replace our phones and all of the devices. Speech and vision is all we need for full immersion. So never mind getting rid of a keyboard. Get rid of the phone. It's all gone. A middle of the road, premium entertainment, professional settings, uh, construction, you know, overlays for building plans, uh, manufacturing, helping you watch tools, which things must I pick up, uh, security, as I mentioned, or art, you know, artists putting on displays, etc. And, you, and you'd see it that way. And then the niche version, if it doesn't come to anything, well, these are high-end helmet displays for sort of fighter pilots and astronauts or, or something like that. And then here's the most dystopian version I think I could come up with, that it would simply be a controller for people. Because despite all the advances in robotics, for performance and cost, the human body is still the best thing. So if you imagine a gig economy where manual workers basically arrive at a job, plop on this little helmet, and it starts showing them what they need to do that day or that hour for this particular job, then simply you're getting, you're getting free, uh, you know, free access to to fancy hands and bodies to do stuff for you, which in the end, I suppose, will, will prove to us that it was our bodies that were the superior design, not our brains. Oh, in your case, perhaps. Colin oh. <laughs> Cullis with Business Unusual this evening. The Money Show. The Big Five. We'll get to the Big Five in just a second. The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. You know when brands get it horribly wrong and they really overplay their hands? And I'm a big fan of Tuck Biscuits. You know, the slightly oily, slightly greasy, salty, lovely crackers that come in the yellow packet with the blue label with T-U-C, Tuck Biscuits. Mmm, tasty. I'm not going to get my uh, not going to be in my basket anytime soon, though. Tuck South Africa. Some things don't need polony to taste good. Hashtag fill the gap left by the end of the most iconic uh, re- relationship in South Africa. Um, perfect without polony. I wonder if it's a real uh, if it's a real social media ad or if somebody's decided to have some fun. Certainly, if it is a real ad for Tuck Biscuits in South Africa, it's going to go down really, really badly. Let's not forget 180 people, 180 people died as a result of listeriosis poisoning. It's not the moment uh, to be making light of it if you are a brand. The Money Show. The Big Five. The Big Five brought to you by Worksman's Attorneys, your legal specialist for success for the last century, keeping you close for 100 years. Visit worksmans.com. Nascent's advisory economist, Kanti Pai, on the line to us from Johannesburg this evening. We were in the same meeting today and you said something that got my attention. You said, the dream of starting a small business in South Africa is a cruel hoax. And I thought to myself, hold on a second, we need some context to that. And then I said to you, give me five cruel hoaxes that people who are being told they must start small businesses are actually facing. What's, what's the context of your cruel hoax comment when it comes to this dream of starting a small business? I think, for us, it comes from uh, Good evening, Bruce. I uh, got to talk to you again. I think one of the things um, that I've been following quite a lot is how everybody thinks because it's been said that it's said enough times that it must be true and therefore everybody must be pushed in that direction and I think that's actually a really, really cool thing because I suppose we all have to believe it, right? Especially in these desperate times. People think, well, because I've heard it and it's all going out there and it's been repeated enough times 
um, it must be true. And it's quite cruel because when you get into it, you find out that's not quite the thing. And actually, it's even worse because in the end, you actually get, a, get more, even more and more despondent. And I think that's the despondency we're starting to see now, especially with young people. They're getting angrier because they think they've been lied to and played. Now, and, and I mean, we were lied to and played when we were told, go to school, get a matric and get a job. Um, half of kids who go to school don't get their matrics and most of them, many of the matrics who get those matrics um, struggle to find a job. But even people who do get to tertiary education struggle even after that to get a job in South Africa. So we say, don't worry, you can start your own business. But nobody tells you how hard it is. And you've been through that process yourself, of course. I have, and I think, as I say to people, you know, I didn't start my business without anything, without any base, without any income, you know, without any savings, and without any connections. But even then, it was difficult to open the first door, to open the second door, to have somebody to trust you. And especially, you know, you come with somebody else's brand. So if you work for a big bank, you think, well, I'm taking the brand with me. But you're not. You're actually going out on your own, and you start from scratch. And all research is telling us, actually, that the way to succeed in entrepreneurship is through networks and actually it's the rich kids that make it and not the poor kids. So to tell poor kids to go and start their own business unit and hire other people, actually not, nothing to say about first getting an income for themselves, but to hire other people and therefore grow the economy is really quite cruel because they will find that that's not the case. And by the time they're finding out they're starving and there are big failures in the world. Uh, and uh, yeah, and it's, uh, it's another one of those cruel hoaxes. We're also told that a government, of course, is going to be the springboard to all of this. Government is going to provide the support because government procurement for black-owned businesses in South Africa in particular is going to be the passport um, to, to people's success in running their own businesses. All you need is a couple of contracts and voila, you will be an entrepreneur. Exactly. And then government slips with a 10-year requirement for experience. And then you think, oh, how do I get into that? You know, come and consult with us and you will get, this is what we're looking for. And we're looking for young black. And then they say, oh, if you only have 10 years experience, or if you've only have been doing boiler makers for this long. And a lot of young people, a lot of people actually in small businesses haven't done that. And actually you can't present your work experience. They say, well, if you've been, how long is your business? It's been registered only for two years. How are you talking about that? And that procurement therefore does not reach, um, especially black people and even young businesses, regardless of whether you are white or you're black, unless you can find somebody who is going to stand in front of you. And that, again, takes us back to connections and networks and all of those things. And but so w- w- wasn't the Department of Small Business going to bridge that gap? <laughs> well, you would have thought so, but we haven't seen anything. Actually, one of those people who think, where did we get it wrong with the hopes against that? I mean, I think one of the things that they're supposed to do, for example, is to think about how they support, how they give you the right kind of skills. What kind of skills can you get? What do they think are the kind of skills that you know small businesses need? What kind of support? And all of those things actually have been lost to them because I think in a big way, they themselves have been walked the path. We need some people in that department to walk the path that can at least start to define what even entrepreneurship actually represents, what it actually means, rather than to think, well, bring me some young people and I'll support them. Yeah, I mean, also, we, we live in a world where we believe that growth equals jobs. And we've had some growth in South Africa over the last 10 years. It hasn't been brilliant, but we've had some growth. It hasn't translated to jobs. And even growth at 2% is not necessarily going to translate automatically to jobs. And certainly not the numbers of jobs South Africa needs to dig itself out of the dwang. 
Certainly not, John. I mean, I think, you know, for example, if you take an industry like manufacturing, people talk about manufacturing as, you know, it's got great multipliers and it's got great potential indeed. And people keep saying, you know, running the myth that the sector has been declining. It's been declining, yes, as a percentage of GDP, but in itself it's been growing. But it's hiring less and less people because it's getting investment and it's taking that investment to more efficient areas of, for example, producing paper and printing. So you have less and less people in that environment. So um, you do all the studies and you see this investment is going in. You are seeing that production is going up, but employment going the other direction. And actually that's the thing about how do we actually nuance the conversation much better than that. How do we actually make sure that we are focusing on investment, that it has the capacity to employ more people and be able to actually you know, deliver on this big promise. Even for small businesses like myself, if people say to me, you know, um, as you know, the tide is turning, you know, we are growing. Did you see that last quarter? The last quarter was probably not the best times of my life. But part of it is because actually other areas are growing. It's a, big, a much more complex environment. And that actually growth by itself is not what we are looking for. We might actually have to divide it up into sectors, into subsectors, into different kinds of skills. And then we are talking a real talk. Um, you know, easy mm-hmm. talk is not, we are no longer living in a world of easy talk and, you know, and fed about. But, but you said we no longer talk. live in a world of easy talk, but we live in a world of rhetoric. We live in a world of promises. We live in a world where politicians, desperate to make it seem as if they're doing something to change people's lives, make big promises. And one of those big promises is that land will give you economic freedom. And I get why people <laughs> want to believe it and want to hold on to it. But you say that that is another one of those. Terribly cruel hoaxes. Terribly cruel, John. For the first instance, you know, black people keep thinking that, you know, we only, they only lost land. We only lost land in 1912 or whenever that was. Actually, you lost the capacity to work the land. So first, you have to end the capacity. And, of course, there's all the other things that come with actually working the land, which involves, uh, you know, being able to have the right kind of infrastructure, their storage, irrigation, making sure that you're actually getting the right kinds of things happening. And a lot of farmers that have been given land are struggling to do that. And some of them have been talking to the Department of you know, Business and saying, guys, help us, we want seeds, we want infrastructure, we want to be able to get to market. And of course, we know markets are a really difficult thing during this environment, uh, um, in this environment because one of the things that we've found is also that it's not very easy to work, you know, to go up to a retailer and say, here's my stuff. You need the retailer to mm. trust that your stuff is good, to trust that it will deliver on time and all those things. So that's the kind of support structure you need and kind of talk we need over a period of time. Kanti Pai, we must leave it there. Nascent's advisory economist talking all about the five cruel hoaxes that young people are facing today when it comes to economic freedom and to create their own levels of freedom. The Money Show. Shape Shifters. It's been six years since Leslie Williams was in studio. She was last year as a shapeshifter in 2012. She cut her teeth in business at Gibbs and she was then running a, a hub, an incubator. So, Impact Hub. An Impact Hub. And, and now she is the chief executive of Tsimo Lohong, yes. which is all about new beginnings. Yes. And it's like an Impact Hub. It's like an innovation space. What exactly is it? Sure. So um, it's all of that um, to start with, but it's also an ecosystem. So, um, in fact, I, I met the, the founder of, of Chimolokong Precinct in uh, 2011, thereabouts, mm-hmm. uh, on the same, at the same conference. And at that time, I was running what was the first co-working space in South Africa, which is Impact Hub. And prof- so was that the first one? Was Impact Hub yes. the first place where people could go and sit with a laptop and get a cup yeah. of coffee and go, I'm good at marketing. Well, I'm good at maths. Oh, let's yeah. work together. Boom. And, and go yeah. off and go and create something. And, and the focus there was, was social innovation. 
Mm. Whereas Chimalohong Precinct, which is birthed out of Wits University, um, but it's a separate entity. So, um, and, and we are a, um, a for-profit entity or, or a private company. So we need to be entrepreneurial as a team. And our focus is around growing digital innovation um, in the Bramfontein neighborhood. So I think for me, the differentiator between Chimalokong Precinct and most other typical hubs or incubators is that, number one, the size and the scale of it. You know, so we're looking at all of Bramfontein. We have seven buildings, um, but we also work with the entire ecosystem from corporates to entrepreneurs at the heart of everything we do, a provincial government, academia. So what, what, do you, what is your purpose then as Chimalokong? Um, what, what, what do you see as the purpose? Again, to create the space where people can meet and connect up and the way you will then help provide them with connections? How does it, how does it work? Here's yes. me with, with, with one idea. I come and knock on your door. Sure. What do you do? So the ultimate intention of Chimalukong is to create um, world-class te- technology, firstly to solve local problems, but also for, for export. Um, I think the the technology ecosystem or world is moving so fast and, and we need to go beyond being consumers as Africans. So people engage us with us in different ways. So the entrepreneur um, would come to a, a, an array of our workshops, our events, and they may choose to sign up to an incubation or acceleration program. So we'll assess where they are as a business and put them in the right space. Now, this is a long way from your impact hub. Yes. Of eight years, six years ago. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the evolution of the idea, because now there are lots of hubs, there are yeah. lots of places where people meet and um, I think you know, they come and go. Mm. Um, but you've evolved this concept into something which is far more proactive rather than a passive meeting space. Sure. So um, first say that, I mean, Impact Hub is alive and well in Rosebank and, and its focus is around digital innovation. Whereas Chimolkong, I, I would say it, it operates at a different platform. I think um, one of our big advantages is that we have access to talent. So we have access to talent at Wits University, even UJ is just down the road. So what I've seen over the past few years is that people may have a world-changing idea or local-changing idea, mm-hmm. but they don't necessarily have the technical competency to, to take it to life. On the other extreme, we see amazing innovation sitting in labs and they're not seeing market. They're not commercializing. So Chimalhong acts as, as that bridge. We want to take the great techies and, and developers and get them to commercialize and scale. And we want to take the guys with a great idea and really make sure that they've got rigorous tech in order to, to, to be activated. What would we know that has come out of Chimalhong? Sure. So what you will be knowing quite soon, there's a bunch of in- initiatives. Um, the one is, I'm thinking of, of Patwa, one of the guys of our makerspace. Um, he's actually just won one of IBM Research Labs Awards. And he's created a smart streetlight. Um, so it's just any street light is good. <laughs> but a smart street light is one step ahead. Exactly. Yes. One that lights are always going out. Um, so it's solar enabled. So, you know, when electricity, when there's power cuts, you know, it's because it's solar, it will stay on. But it also uh, detects um, water um, drainage issues. You know, so it's a multifunctional tool. And the thing is, the guys in the makerspace, they, they, they're quite unique, these tinkerers or inventors. They sit there and they just want to make stuff all day. And some of it is very practical and go to market. Some of it is experimental. 
Um, so, I mean, something yeah. like a solar streetlight, for example, is a work of genius. I mean, we could get solar traffic lights as well. Yeah. Um, and, and then the various vulnerabilities that come in South Africa, because suddenly there's a solar panel on top of a pole. Mm. Let's get hold of that. So we've got to find ways to secure um, the technology in, in, in the South African environment. Yeah. And that brings another set of challenges. But here's somebody with an engineering brain who exactly. may not then have the marketing brain and the business yep. brain to take it and then make a million of these yeah. things, which are what are required on streets around South Africa. Yeah, uh, yeah and I mean, he's also generating quite a bit of data <laughs> um, with, a, with a smart street light. So I have someone like, like Patwa who's in the space. We also have IBM Research Lab in the space. And in fact, that's one of 12 research labs um, around the world. And it's based in downtown Bromfontein. You know, where a few people, a lot of South Africans don't venture downtown yet. No, no, but that's the point. I mean, an IBM, what's their motivation then for sticking a research lab in Bromfontein? Sure. So they want to interact with what's happening in the city. So part of uh, their agenda is, is looking at issues that we're facing, especially mapped out in the National Development Plan. And uh, they bring the tech and they bring Watson um, they analyzed. Watson is the supercomputer yes. that um, uh, competed in the an American game show. This is 15 Don't years me, ago. But yes. um, in an American game show about 15 years ago called Jeopardy, and Watson yeah. won. Yes. And that yes, was the yes, first yes. signal that AI was something real, or at least a form of computer intelligence, yeah. the ability to access information yeah. in the internet. And Watson must have evolved a billion times since then. Yeah. So, I mean, just them being based downtown, they really access, like, what is at the heart of, of the city? Um, again, they have lots of partners with, partnerships with Fitz University working on a number of projects, but they're on the street, and it's one of the most accessible research labs they have in, around the world. We're going to talk more about research labs, the relationship with Wits University, and how Tsimolohong is going to change the world. If you've been there, if you are part of the process of Tsimolohong and you want to tell us all about it, uh, give us a call on 021-446-0567, 0111-883-0702. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. There's no shortage of accelerators and incubators and innovation spaces. And uh, Timur Hong is all of those things in one. And Leslie Williams is chief executive at Timur Lohong. Um, it's in downtown Bramford. Inside the facility is an IBM research lab, just one of 12 in the world. And what these guys are trying to do is match up great ideas with some capital, with markets, with um, other people who are able to, I don't know, service the ideas as well. Um, and it's trying to create this environment in South Africa where people with great ideas can be creative and productive and set about creating great African technological advances. Because so many great global problems, I'm sure, can be solved on this African continent. If we can, survive, if we can um, solve some local problems, whether it be in water reticulation or whether it can be in disease control or whatever it might be, um, there will be global applications for it. Yeah, I think, you know, in South Africa is in, the, in a unique position where we have the right, sufficient infrastructure um, to be able to connect with, with first world markets. But we have a, enough problems where we connect with the rest of the developing world. Um, two weeks ago, I was in, in Paris um, on a, a bit of a roadshow meeting with, with local partners uh, to connect with uh, the work that we're doing. And visiting one of the, the, the largest animation um, and, and basically the best animation school in the world, 
um, they shared some some data with us. You know, like there's there's thirty thousand. There's a shortage of thirty thousand animators globally. And one of the first one of the uh, the, the primary skills that you need is uh, being able to draw. So that's even before you go digital, before you go online. It's a basic skill to draw. They're also crying out for for African produced quality. Um, they like we have we have enough Disney worlds now. We have enough pixels. Like, what are we seeing out of Africa? And you know that's where we come in. And and we have through our Skills Development Academy, we can um, get hold of of um, kids who are both school leavers who are university dropouts, but they have a basic skill and they need um, some support to get them going. You would have heard Clanty Pye just before you came in talking about the five big hoaxes um, that he sees as an economist in the world of entrepreneurship and the world of small business. Do you think we're lying to young people? I mean, there, so many of the people who come through your doors with great ideas will leave despondent and depressed as their businesses fail um, and, and they sort of go into a jobs market where there are no jobs and there is no hope. Um, are we putting lipstick on a on a very ugly bulldog here? Sure. So what I am about to say is with all due respect to my colleagues in the incubation world, but I think, you know, often when, when we interview um, entrepreneurs and we, we, we play our spaces out to be quite aspirational, the entrepreneurs often forget that they need to interview us as well. So I think there's a huge array of programs and incubation activity, like you say, but number one, not all are the right level of quality. Um, number two is that a lot of it, the time, it's dependent on who the manager of these spaces are. And as far as I'm concerned, if you've never been an entrepreneur, you have no business supporting entrepreneurs yeah. and telling them how to run their businesses. Um, so we waste the time of a lot of young people who could be out there experimenting or out there um, finding a place that's more suitable for their needs. So how are you doing it differently? What is there in your space? Does Richard Branson pop in from time to time, hypothetically? (laughs) Sure. So I would say I'll start with my core team. I have a core team of um, diverse people who are intergenerational. Our oldest team member is about 71 years old, um, and our youngest is about 22 years old. So there's intergenerational knowledge that flows through the place. Um, we also have diversity from from age to race to culture. So there's different kinds of thinking, and we're always challenging each other, and, and we debate on various issues. So we're the nucleus of, of, of what, for me, a diverse, vibrant ecosystem looks like. So when we support our entrepreneurs, we, we bring different perspectives to where and how we influence um, how they think. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is I have quite an entrepreneurial team. So I encourage them to, to have side gigs, um, to maintain their relevance in society when they feed back in. Um, also, we don't want to uh, keep entrepreneurs on a lifeline when their businesses aren't going anywhere. You know, so we have exit points in our in our incubator. If you're not evolving, if you don't have a um, a good reason for that fail fast and and go get yourself a job sometimes that's the best thing we can say to someone um fail fast and go get a job or fail fast and try something different or fail fast and tweak what it is that you're doing Um, typically what is the life cycle of somebody who enters with a bright idea through the front door sure so there's no um one answer so Mm -hmm. i think an entrepreneur depending on where the business is if it's early stage typically needs about a year year and a half um, kind of support. They in, there's a combination of, of programming we have, curriculum that they can go through. But the real work is when they're, they're 
look at the questions we we're asking them and, and it's more coaching but they need to go to the market and do the world with the work they need to to meet customers get feedback um pivot when they need to they they can't be sitting in the space daily um, but like I say, the support mechanism is for about a year and a half. Do you have a graduation process? I mean, do, how, ma- how mm. many people have come in the door and how many people have left with smiles on their faces? Sure. So Chimalakong Precinct is just over a year old. Mm. And um, our first um, two cohorts are, are just coming through. It's an incubation program with JP Morgan and one with uh, BCX Telcom Future Makers. Um, so each cohort has about approximately 15 entrepreneurs um, in there. Um, also to add that, and I think this is unique about Chimolokong, we have incubation programs we've designed, but we also work with various partners. So other people host the incubation programs at Chimolokong as well. Yeah. You know, so E-Squared just had a, a graduation last night. And for me, the value also is, is the different program managers meeting and sharing best practice on how we grow, again, the, the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Will you ever have uh, the scale to do more than 15 per program, 15 yes. young people per program? Yes, it, yes. It's uh, admirable, and the, those 30 will hopefully go out and make a difference in yep. the real world. Um, but we need to be doing 3,000. Totally uh, agreed, <laughs> and, and that's what we're working yeah. to. So um, since I've come on board in October as CEO, um, the, the team's grown dramatically. We've, we've hired about 17 new people. Um, the first few cohorts officially started in September last year, and they're just um, exiting at the moment. Our ambition this year is just to have to run 10 programs this year and to incrementally grow it. What is exciting you most about this, the space that you're in, sure. in, the, the, in, the, in this sort of new dawn era of South Africa, this sense of hope, the yeah. sense of possibility, the sense that actually you might not be wasting your time? Mm. <laughs> because I, I'm sure there must be various yeah. times where you feel like, what is the purpose of all of this in an economy that's never going to go anywhere? Totally. I mean, I've been in the space for a couple of years. Sometimes it becomes quite disheartening. I'm sure. But then you come across these opportunities which are totally unexpected. You know, we're doing quite a bit of work in, in the mining industry at the moment and supporting, like, what does the future mine of South Africa looks, look like? Because if it doesn't, uh, if it doesn't modernize, it's not going to be, it's not going to exist. You're working with somebody who wants to send drones into mines, which is Weird, but that's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. But then suddenly you come across um, solutions in the gaming industry, gaming and animation, you know. So young, uh, young as in inverted commas, people like literally gaming, and suddenly we can use that same technology to create simulation, um, linking into AR, VR, mixed reality, all the stuff you spoke about yeah. in the interview before me. And a miner can have a simulated experience before they go down a mine which can radically um, support health, health and safety. Yeah. Underground. Uh, and so we've seen some great innovations coming through in South Africa, and we're seeing it happen uh, really slowly. Um, and, and, I mean, we've got, we had uh, Tashma Ismail in here last week, mm. and she is the, the chief executive of, yes, yes, the Youth Employment Service, with this big goal of creating a million oh, sort of work experience opportunities for young people mm. in the next three years. I mean, the goals are big, but they have to be. Mm. We have to have audacious goals, don't we? Yeah, yeah f- definitely. I think, you know, it's one of those shoot for the stars and you may, you know, reach the moon kind of thing. Mm. Um, I think one of the, the, the big problems is that the sector is still quite disconnected. We have a few bodies who are, are doing fantastic work, like the Andy Network, in convening the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Um, but it's still too disjointed. Um, I had a fantastic conversation with the CEO of Endeavor on, on Friday, and we were saying if, if Endeavor is the finishing school for entrepreneurs, how do we work backward? 
but let's look at their criteria, really make sure that these entrepreneurs are globally um, relevant, that they're A-class, but we work backward and make sure that the rest of the pipeline is connected so we can achieve this, this A-class entrepreneur. And I'd like to see more of that. We need to be ambitious, but we need to mm. be working together to be realistic about achieving that ambition. Um, and I, I just love the, the energy of it. I love the ambition of it. And I wish you luck. And Thank you. Um, upping, upping the game for entrepreneurs in South Africa, Leslie Williams, Chief Executive of Chimolo Hong, um, on The Money Show this evening. She was last year six years ago when she launched Impact Hub. And the world has changed dramatically in those six years. And you can't go through places like Bramfordane and Rosebank without seeing hubs and seeing mm. people and seeing um, people with laptops and, and, and earphones in trying to change the world. Just on setting audacious goals, by the way, before I wrap up this evening, uh, I saw Peter Schlebusch today, the outgoing chief executive of the Personal and Business Bank um, at Standard Bank. And there's something in that uh, part of Standard Bank which they call being Schlebuscht. And Thank that is when somebody sets you an impossible goal, as Peter Schlebusch has become renowned in that business for doing. And he says, well, it's okay if you only get to 90% of the goal, you've mm. achieved probably 40% more than you would have achieved anyway. So make the goals really big yes. and seemingly unattainable and then work your heart out to reach those goals. And if you get close, you're much better off yeah. than you were with a much lower goal. So there's a good totally lesson with that. for today. <laughs> My thanks to you, Leslie. Thanks so much for coming in. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. That's it from The Money Show for this evening. Looking forward to catching up with Bruce Hemphill, the chief executive for now of Old Mutual, as he talks breakup on purpose. That's next time on The Money Show.